You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Augustine. How are you? I am well. How about yourself? I'm not complaining. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Augustine Fuentes, a professor of anthropology at Princeton University. And this is a kind of continuation of a conversation we had some months ago on this very uh, podcast. Um, that conversation was mainly about uh, a, a now pretty famous editorial you wrote for the journal Science about uh, the legacy of Darwin's uh, book, The Descent of Man. Uh, I had written something in reply in my newsletter, the non-zero newsletter, that was somewhat critical. We had a great conversation about that. Toward the end of the conversation, uh, we got onto another hot-button issue, which is the, the issue of, um, I guess you could say, uh, differences uh, between male and female humans uh, that are uh, psychological, uh, said to be, that are said to exist, <laughs> and that are... Uh, psychological, and are said by some to have some basis in genetic differences between men and women. Uh, the people saying that latter thing would be evolutionary psychologists mainly. I have written, uh, you might say very sympathetically, about evolutionary psychology in a book I wrote called The Moral Animal. Um, that's not to say I endorse everything that everyone who calls himself an evolutionary psychologist says, but... Uh, so we're going to... We, we, we vowed to continue that conversation about uh, the, the issue of sex differences, I would say especially in the realm of sexual psychology. Mm -hmm. um, I want to make a couple of things clear uh, from the beginning that I think you'll probably sign on to. Uh, if not, you can let us know. I don't think either of us is saying that uh, to say that something is in some sense of the word, quote, natural, is to say it's good. Right. Or to say that it's beyond changing. And to say that uh, some difference uh, between groups uh, that uh, you you might say is in some sense in the genes, to say that is not to say that that's unchangeable. Right. Um, I, I do think some of the differences between men and women that I think have a basis in the genes are not trivially easy to change, and that uh, that's why I think it's good to talk about them and and uh, and and figure out what the the implications. Uh, of this might be, if indeed it's true. Um, are there any preamble-type things you want to say before we get started or, or, or add or subtract from what I said? Yeah, I guess, I mean, we'll get into this, but yeah, I, I think the way you framed it is perfect, right? I mean, there's no one's going to debate that in the species Homo sapiens, right, we've got a lot of variation. Some of that variation, very interesting variation, is in what we're calling males and females or men and women. Now, I would like to say that I think male and female aren't always the same as man and woman, right? But we can get into talking about that. <laughs> that's um, a whole, that's no, a whole nother, uh, and, we, and we should get into that by the yeah, end at some point. Yeah. No, but I think if, if it's okay with you, what I'd love to do is start with biology, because mm -hmm. I think what happens with a lot of evolutionary psychology and a lot of sort of people who want to talk a lot about sex differences, they assume a lot about biology that's not accurate. And so there's there's some really important basic biology of sex, right, that is central to this whole conversation. Okay. Now, is there something you want to start with about yeah. biology or? Okay. Sure. Let, let me just lay down and I'll take as little time as possible. But I think this is really important because um, when I have conversations with folks about sex and biology, sexuality, sex, gender, all of that, 
everyone starts with an idea of sex and they start talking about sex, right? Um, and I just sit there and listen. And half the time I respond to them quoting Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride. I don't think that word means what you think it means. And here's why. So we know that sexual reproduction and it's a whole other conversation to have asexual reproduction, right? Sexual reproduction, the whole story of how it evolved is really cool. It's fascinating. But let's, let's ignore that and let's just get to how does sexual reproduction work, right? What is the biology underlying this? Because that's, that's our story, right? If we're talking about evolutionary differences, it has to be rooted in the material biology, right? And the material biology of sex in this sense is reproductive physiology, right? So we know that if you're a sexually reproducing organism, you have to find a way, this lineage or this species has to find a way to develop within that species, right? Some way to take the same physio, the same stuff and create two sort of variations or multiple variations that get you different kinds of gametes, right? So the whole, the whole sex works, biological sex only works if you have two different kinds of gametes that you can bring together and start the sort of the, the process going. So the, the, punchline, right? The universal requirement of sex is a biology that facilitates the development of reproductive physiologies that produce two different kinds of gametes. Now, most people think that means male and female. Actually, there's a whole bunch of ways in which things do this. The most common way is you develop two sort of physiological patterns that generate gametes, but there's a ton of things that don't do that in the same way we think about it. For example, there's tons of fish, right? That start out as female, become male, others that started as male and become female. There's actually a whole bunch of fish that go back and forth between male and female their entire life, mm-hmm. right? So there's a lot of flexibility now in the system. you would say that that itself is in some sense in the genes, right? That's part of the oh, genetic oh, program. totally. Okay. Absolutely. No, and, I'm saying the and, genetic... And we, pro- don't, and we don't seem to have that same kind of no. genetic programming, humans. No, okay. we don't. Okay. We, we fall into... So, and reptiles are another really cool one. We're reptile, the exact same genetic structure will become male or female depending on the temperature the eggs are in, right? So that that's how it so what I'm saying is that it's it's not just X X or XY. That actually biology of sex is this incredible range with the end point of developing a physiology that produces the two gametes that you need to get together. In some cases it's in the same individual like earthworms, right? Mm-hmm. They produce both uh, sperm and egg, but they need another earthworm to get together with. And, and, and then and, fish it go ahead. And, and I mean, I, I assume you'd agree the physiology that develops uh, includes, in some sense, behavior. In other words, totally. you know, Absolutely. the nervous system governs behavior, and you would expect uh, to see the evolution of behavioral tendencies that are conducive to the proliferation of genes. Uh, as, exactly. As, as, so, yeah. so that's exactly it. So, what we have to understand is that the biology of reproductive physiology, right, which is what we're really interested in this evolutionary context, there's not like just one way to do that. There's a whole mm-hmm. bunch of ways to do that in animal kingdom. So that, I think, is an important starting point because people say like, oh, everything has like a male and a female, two versions in the same species. And that's just not true. It, it, it's much more complicated mm-hmm. than that. I just like to get that as a starting point because we tend to think of males and females in the world as two different kinds of things. And they're not, they're actually the same kind of thing, right? Organism that has been shaped developmentally, right? Over time to produce these different patterns. And those, that shaping has huge impacts. And that's what we'll be talking about. Yeah. 
I mean, I think as with a lot of things, you can focus on their commonality or focus right. on their difference. They are right. in some senses, they are at one level the same kind of thing and at one level different kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. But the, my point is that how across the world, that like if you look at walruses, seagulls, mm-hmm. lobsters, mm-hmm. humans, uh, hyenas, and echidnas, right? And that's just a whole bunch of a few mammals and some birds. They actually do this slightly differently. Yeah. And I think that's what's important. Well, and in fact, that... Uh, array of evidence embodied in all these different uh, sexually reproducing species is sometimes drawn upon by evolutionary psychologists yep. to support their arguments in ways you may or may not ex- uh, uh, accept. But I think we'll, we'll get to that. And, and maybe we can get to it kind of right now if we start with what probably to most people is the most familiar ev psych story about sexual psychology differences between males and females in our species. And that is uh, that males are said to be, in some sense, less choosy about sexual partners uh, per se. There there are, even that is an oversimplification. Oversimplification, and I should stop and say that you know everything is an oversimplification, and 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 and, 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 and we're always talking about average behaviors within these two groups, uh, even things that obviously differ by sex and have a basis in the genes like height. You see a lot of overlap, right. a lot of women right. taller than a lot of men. Okay, so right. that that you know we're always talking about just um, kind of statistical generalizations, but in general, it has been observed. Uh, and in fact, let's step back further. Darwin observed that it seemed to him that in general across the animal species, uh, females were choosier about sex partners than males. He, he saw that in so many species that he sought an explanation for it. He didn't find the explanation that today uh, uh, evolutionary psychologists and, 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 and some evolutionary biologists uh, would... Um, would embrace, but he, he saw it as a, as a pretty broad pattern. Right. Now, um, and, and in our species, some of the manifestations of that might be that, um, you know, males are more sexually aroused by sheerly visual cues. Um, you know, especially, uh, and, and that in turn is reflected in certain things that seem to be pretty cross cultural, like, uh, not necessarily whether uh, you're, a male or female is attracted to pornography, but the nature of the pornography. Male, males, male pornography seems to be less plot dependent, less dependent on any kind of psychological acquaintance with the the, the object of sexual desire and so on. Anyway, I don't want to I don't want to get right. off on all of this, but people are probably familiar with even if they just consider it a false stereotype, they're probably consider cons- right. they're probably familiar with the stereotype that that. Uh, Women are, uh, and I will use that term loosely to refer yeah. to uh, human sexually mature females. <laughs> okay, right. that's what women will mean in this conversation. Uh, and, and I'm talking about heterosexual women to uh, to further specify, but um, that um, they uh, you know would evaluate, like for example, they might look for signs of commitment. Before they, you know, and, and that's, uh, you know, again, statistically, that's not to say that women, uh, never are attracted to impersonal sex or that no women right. are attracted to a lot of it. That's not to say either right. of those things. We're talking about a, a group difference that might have an evolutionary explanation. Now, you're familiar with the kind of Ev Psych 101 right. explanation of this, uh, which is that, um, 
because women, uh, during most of human evolution, I mean, at best, uh, women can reproduce maybe once a year, even in the modern environment. Uh, during most of our evolutionary history is more like, uh, two or three years because nursing suppresses ovulation. Um, but in any event, males can in principle reproduce every day if they can find enough females to cooperate. Wait, so, wait, 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 Bob, Bob, I'm just going to stop you right there and jump in sure. because I mean, there's a great bunch of behavioral ecologists that have long pointed out that that assumption for some organisms is accurate. But for humans, actual reproductive variance between males and females is very small. And while in theory, a male could reproduce every day, it takes right. two to tango, right? right? And the the reality of reproductive variation for humans across almost all measures shows that both males and females have pretty much about the same reproductive output, except for every now and then a king or, you know, a Genghis Khan or something like that. And and those aren't evolutionary. Those right. are really cultural outcomes. But I so I just want to be careful I don't really think I'm not sure that's relevant. I mean, even in oh, a world yes it is. even in it a world where it winds up being the case that uh males and and uh females have roughly the same uh kind of per capita reproduction, if that's what you're saying. I mean they mm-hmm. have to on average, right? But you mean you mean that uh that there's less that you're saying there there is not that much more variation in reproductive success among males than among females? Is that what you're saying? Yes. And and so current data demonstrate that. There's slightly more in the studies that have happened in a few societies. The problem is almost no one actually studies lifetime reproductive success mm-hmm. in humans. And when you do that, there's a huge wash between males and females and even between males. Okay, it's but- very rare that there's a statistically significant variance and difference. And, and this is a really important part for humans, kin selection, that is the moving of the closest DNA to you into the next generation is extremely complex. I mean, so we see a lot of DNA. So you don't need, you and I don't even have to necessarily reproduce to get most of our DNA into the next generation. And so I think we got to be very careful about this old assumption that males have huge variants and females have teeny variants, so that creates a different evolution. That's, that's not quite my assumption. I, I'm just talking about the fact that it is theoretically that that uh, even in an even in a society where uh, let's assume that for whatever reason there's not that much variation in reproductive right. rate, it is still the fact that if I have uh, impregnated a woman today, it makes theoretical Darwinian sense for me to expend energy tomorrow finding a new mate. And it doesn't make sense for that female because not she if is you're already a human. pregnant. She cannot... No. no, not if you're a human because human infants, and this is a deep, and we've got great evolutionary data on this, right? Sarah Hurdy's work, Lee Gettler's work. There's a whole bunch of studies and, and really good documentation out there that the human adaptation to reproduct- successful reproduction with these incredibly costly and help, helpless mm-hmm. infants, mm-hmm. right? Wendell Trevathan's work, Karen Rosenberger's work, shows clearly that humans began very early on this cooperative mating stuff. So it turns out this sure. notion you that mean, males... You mean male parental investment or you mean cooperation? Male parental investment and broader cooperative investment. Yeah, well, well uh, that has huge implications, and I agree. Yeah. It's absolutely... Character- I have a whole section in my book on yeah. male parental investment and its significance. And one... One piece of significance, which we shouldn't jump to now, but I want to get to, is that in theory you would expect the nature of jealousy to differ between males and females because of that male parental investment. But we can we can get to that. What right. I want to say now is that 
Um, if there is, uh, if the fact that males can, uh, can reproduce more frequently than females, the fact that a male having, uh, impregnated a female, uh, yesterday doesn't mean he can't double his reproductive output tomorrow. Whereas it does mean that for the female that has been impregnated. It absolutely, it's, wait, 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 no, you're shaking it's not your head, fact. but let's be, let, 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 then let's drill down on this one point. Right. I'm going to say this again, and you tell me if you're denying this. Yes. If if I have impregnated a woman today, right, and 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 uh, and and she's going to carry that baby to term, I can go out tomorrow and do something that doubles my reproductive output over the next nine months. She cannot. You you deny that? No. What you just said here, let me say what I agree with. Uh-huh. If a human male and a human female get together, right, that is an exchange gametes and there's fertilization, right, the pregnancy, right? Mm-hmm. So that female then cannot become pregnant again while she is carrying that pregnancy, right? right? That male can indeed go off and potentially collaborate on another pregnancy right. with another female. Right. That's all true. Now, but let's step back for a second. Humans never live alone. It's just We're not talking about one man and one woman in this sort of vacuum. We're talking about societies and social mores and context and investment. And in fact, you don't get to count. You don't get to check off in the box fitness or reproductive success until that child has grown up and reproduced itself. Absolutely. And to do that, you need investment. You need caretaking. Right. You need social structure. So Throughout human evolutionary history, if there was one guy who like had sex with you know a woman, got that woman pregnant, everyone knew about it, and just like the hell with this, I'm out of here. You know what usually happened? That guy was ostracized, cast out, right. not allowed I didn't to do say, this. I didn't say so. he would have to leave her. I didn't say he would have to leave her. I mean, no, but, I, I, I mean, think, I think, but he, you're you creating know, a theoretical like landscape that just isn't okay, true then let's for get humans. Empirical. Let's get right. empirical. Okay, right. George Williams. In his book, Adaptation and Natural Selection in the late 60s, looked at this very issue and said, uh, yeah, it is possible that the difference, uh, I'm pretty sure George said this in in the book, uh, if not, you know, Robert Trivers later said something like it, but I think he cited George, um, uh, said, said, uh, okay, let's examine this possibility that the key variable is the fact that the female is investing all this time and energy in this one precious egg, and she can only do it and bring it to term like once a year or so. The, for the male, on the other hand, each reproductive act is relatively cheap in terms of the, the, the energy spent, but, but I think the key variable is actually how often they can do it. And, and he said, let's examine this empirically. It turns out that there are a few species in which that's not true. Right. There are birds called phalaropes, where the male actually incub- sits on the eggs, which leaves the female free right. to go uh, find another male and have more eggs. Right. There are like uh, seahorses or some species closely related to seahorses, where the male incubates the, the eggs right. in, in the his pouch. pouch and the female. Right. And, and George said, look, here's a way to actually test this theory. If it's true, then you should not in these species uh, see the pattern where the male is less choosy about sex partners. Right. And and apparently it turned out that was the case. He was right, okay? Yeah. So that's... Agreed. Imp- okay, so then how do you explain that? So, well, here's the problem is, you're doing what I was trying to say at the beginning, we have to be careful doing. You're saying, well, humans are just like, that this, this is a universal pattern. 
but let's talk specifically about human biology. Let's talk specifically about the investment, right? Is it really super expensive for a female and cheap for a male? Let's yes. sit back and yes, ask, well, I mean, Patricia Gowdy, uh, Zulema Tang Martinez, um, uh, a number of other scholars have clearly shown that Bateson's initial anisogamy argument that eggs are expensive and sperm is cheap actually doesn't hold up for a lot of species. So let's ask, let's but ask for humans. We're talking about our species. I mean, that's right. George's so, point. It doesn't hold up for all species. And in the species that are exceptions, you but, should see a reversal of the behavior. Mm-hmm. And you But do. let's ask, let's ask about our species. Okay. Let's just talk about those who produce sperm, right? Let's call the, let's the, the males. So is a single, how many sperm it's, I mean, most people say, well, look at sperm is cheap. Eggs are expensive. Okay. But it's not one sperm, one egg as a comparison, right? Because the ejaculate number, right, is important. So what is considered sort of insufficient for a male? How many sperm per ejaculate? Insufficient? Have any idea? I yeah, have no that, idea. That, I've never so, counted. So sterile, well, it turns out if you have 1.5 million sperm or less, you're probably uh-huh. sterile. There's no chance of inseminating the egg. So you need usually two, three, four, five, six million sperm per ejaculate to have any chance at inseminating the egg, any chance. Okay. And that's all because of all this stuff in the, in the vaginal uh, region. And, and so it's very complicated. So a male isn't just producing one sperm. A male is producing millions of sperm. And the machinery that, that males use, that reproductive machinery, is highly susceptible to stress, to nutritional duress, to disease. So it's actually a machinery that has to be ongoing. And unlike females, males do this their whole lives. And so it's actually quite energetically expensive. So that's one cost, right, that we're not talking about here, which we have to recognize. A second cost is males can't just walk up to females and have sex with them, right? It actually doesn't work that There's way. There's a reason you have for to that. Convince, There's well, a reason you have to for convince that. other people to have sex with you. And then, right, you have to convince sort of this broader, done in a social context and all that. So there's a lot of costs for males right. but that's, outside but part of, of that. What's to be explained here is why does it take so much convincing? Why does it take more convincing uh, for the woman than, than for the man in a lot of kinds of space, uh, uh, cases I can specify. On average, again, on average. I mean, we, we have to be careful to talk about sort of cultural norms and actual behavior. So if we want to, we can get into like the actual sexuality studies. So if you look at from the Kinsey studies through the recent University of Chicago studies, the actual difference in sexual patterns between males and females are very small. Right. If you look at the people in the Kinsey Institute, I recommend people go take a look at that. Kinsey Institute has a lot of these data and, and um, statistics available. It turns out that we have these assumptions. In fact, just two days ago, there's a big article that came out showing that women do not show more regret or depression after short term or uh, inconsequential mating. I'm just saying that if we want to get into the psychological data, we can. What I'm trying to do is sort of we need to be very careful about our biological assumptions. So the assumptions that you just laid out are based on Bateson's anisogamy and Trivers calculations, right? Really, well, in the I, contemporary Can I actually say something about that? Yeah. You, you talked about how much actual investment it takes to create a sperm. Uh, I think, or, or how, in the context of how many sperm it takes to have a good chance of reproducing, um, Robert Trivers, in his paper on parental investment in the 70s, did put it in terms of investment. There are, and I for, there are people, and I am one of them, who think that actually the key thing is how often can they reproduce in principle. Now, you would expect the two to be related, but they're not the same thing. And I think the latter is the bottom line. Now, I forget how George Williams put it in his 
in, in his book, I it wouldn't surprise me if he didn't stress frequency, but, but that's what I'm stressing. And, and it's just undeniable that a man can, in principle, theoretically, if, if, if again, he can find enough females, uh, to cooperate, uh, have a lot more, um, uh, you know, babies per year than, than a woman. Now, now I certainly concede that throughout, uh, uh, you know, the, the part of, uh, human evolutionary history that we can with any confidence reconstruct, for example, in particular, and in particular, kind of imagining, uh, some kind of hunter gatherer past, you would not have uh, men, uh, a given guy having, uh, you know, uh, you wouldn't have a huge variation in reproductive success against males. The social among right. males, the social environment's not conducive to it. Now, right. later, after the invention of agriculture and the acu- and the stratification of wealth, you do start to see more pronounced differences. And by the way, you right. more than I think that that part of our evolution is actually relevant. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I personally absolutely. emphasize the hunter gather past. So. Yeah. Uh, so I would certainly, uh, agree with your point that, that evolution hasn't, that our, our history hasn't permitted huge, uh, differences in male reproductive success for most of our evolutionary history. But if it is permitted, uh, any appreciable differences, you right. would expect natural selection to pick up on that. I mean, it seems to me like if you really think about how evolution works, if it really happens by natural selection, which I think it does, you have to think of natural selection as something that really plays the odds on the margins. That that a small difference in survival advantage or reproductive advantage, right. organism after organism, generation after generation, even though, again, it's not going to play out in every organism because there's so many variables at play. But if on average you, you have an edge... Uh, then that edge does tend to get picked up on, you might say, so, by natural yeah. selection. So so this is, well, first of all, very important to point out, natural selection is a primary process by which evolutionary change happens, but it's not the only one, right? Genetic drift, gene flow, niche construction, developmental plasticity, there are a bunch of things that impact sort of organismal and genomic change across generations. I, I think that's important, but let's just stick with natural selection. And that is... Okay, I totally agree with you, but then you have to go to the data. You have to be a naturalist. You have to see what happens in the world because in theory, things can happen that never happen in the world. And so the question is, over human evolutionary histories and through today, is the variance so substantial? And is that variation, that variation actually connected to specific genetic differences between men, right? Can selection even act on the variation? If the variation comes about through economic and political change because of, let's say, sedentism and agriculture, are there underlying genomic processes that lead to that differentiation? Or is that purely cultural evolution, right? Or is this cultural inequities or what have you? So my bottom line here is I agree with you, but I'm, you know, based in field research. And I think if we can't see it in the field, if we don't have material evidence that these things are happening, we can theorize all we want. And that's the problem with Trivers sort of what, original, you know, Bob Trivers original work. It's a mathematical equation that if you look at, and again, I encourage folks to read Patricia Gowdy, um, uh, uh, Zulimitang Martinez, and a huge array of scholars who've gone out and tested the Trivers Willard hypothesis in many senses, and it doesn't pan out. And when we look at humans, I think there's a really good paper, um, a number of good papers by the behavioral ecologists uh, at, at Davis, showing that in humans it doesn't pan out. 
And so we've got to step back and say, what did the Wait, actual the, data tell us? What doesn't pan out in humans? The, the standard Trivers sort of investment compassion, right? So you're talking about some psychological, you're, you're Bush and Schmidt's sociosexual uh, catalog, right? Uh, the two major papers from, from Buss and Smith, which are David Buss, we should say, has done a lot of empirical work on this, including cross-cultural studies. Yep. Um, absolutely. Where he, you know, uh, and, and he argues that uh, if you look at the cross-cultural data, uh, some of which he has gathered, these, uh, the key generalizations predicted by the theoretical framework I'm describing uh, hold up. I haven't looked at his stuff in a long time, but, but, but uh, he's, he's very active and people should take a look. He's got so, a new book and, out, I know. And David Schmidt has also done a, an amazing right. uh, amount of this work as well and they've collaborated. And so I think it's very important. But if you look at the more recent stuff, you see it's much more nuanced. But I am again saying, well, then let's look at what are the markers? How do we measure this? Reproductive variants, um, uh, material, like uh, morphological cues. How do we pick, like how do females pick males? How do males pick females? How does that work? It turns out that most of those assumptions that are out there actually are demonstrably false, right? And so what we're left with is this theoretical landscape that says, oh, these things pattern out, but there's no quantitative data, right? We don't have evidence that male variance is huge relative to female variance in, in reality. It doesn't right? have to be huge. It has to have been appreciable during, it has to have been appreciable for an appreciable part of human evolution. But, but it has to have had that appreciable vari- variation then has to have had a specific set of underlying genomic patterns that differentiated males, for example, in, in your argument here, that selection for certain males, right, mm-hmm. right, led to certain patterns. So a couple questions I would ask. What's being selected, right? Uh, in the psych notion, it's this sort of module or this sort of approach. Now, we already, we, you know, and I can, we can look at the Zell uh, recent uh, overview of sociosexual and uh, psychological analysis, right? 12 million people, 20,000 studies, Right. Showing that in most cases, these overlaps are a wash. Right. You can even look at folks like John Archer, who's really the focus on aggression and sex differences. And his major studies show some sociosexual and some other differences. But most of it ends up being a wash. I mean, the bottom line here is that there's a lot of variation out there. What things are a wash? What things are not panning out? What variables are not? So the differences between actual reproductive success when it's mm-hmm. measured, which is almost never the differences in variance in potential reproductive success among males being connected right. to any physiological or genomic pattern, right? What selection would act on? We, there's nothing there. Right. And the fact that well, there's a well, number seen, of studies, I've seen studies uh, of, uh, you know, now modern hunter gatherer societies are, you know, we can't magically resurrect actual hunter gatherer societies from, from right. 40,000 years ago, but, uh, you know, there are, uh, and, and all at this point, all hunter-gatherer societies have had contact with other societies and that are very different right. and so on. But I've certainly seen, um, studies that showed, uh, some variation in reproductive success among males and moreover correlated that with, uh, with indices of what you might call social status. Although yeah. That's well, a- let's, I mean, okay. let's take some of the most famous ones, right? Napoleon Chagnon's study of the Yanomamo, which meant, which demonstrated that men who became unokai, people who've killed, right, have high status and they had more offspring than people who hadn't. But when Doug Fry went back and used 
Chagnon's actual data, he demonstrated that age predicted that better. So men who live longer, right, had more offspring. And, and that's actually makes sense given human societies. You live longer, you have more opportunities. What's really interesting is the similar study in the Warani, another Amazonian group in that area who are even more violent and status driven than the Yanomamo, um, found negative correlations between high status, especially aggressive and males who've killed. Yeah, I wasn't really talking about success. violence. And I'd have to go back and find, uh, you know, the studies that I myself, uh, cited in my book, but, uh, I just, uh, you're saying there is somebody who has persuasively shown that there's good reason to think that there was no variation among reproductive success in males during our, our evolutionary no, history. Not no variation in reproductive what, success. That's what your skepticism, but, I think, requires. No, 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 no. No, it doesn't at all. It has to be variation in reproductive success that is clearly linked to particular genomic or behavioral processes and patterns so that selection can act on it, Right. Because if, 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 if you don't have something for selection to act on, right, you can't just say there's variation. Well, of course. Um, cause the selection has to select for something, right? So what's being selected for? In the standard evolutionary psych model, it's a kind of neuromodule, right? It's a, it's yeah. a way of being male, right? Um, so then what we need to do is ask, okay, well, where's the physiological, the hormonal, the neuroendocrine, uh, the neurobiological well, processes and patterns. The whole story is not spelled out, if that's what you mean. I, I mean, but but it's still you mean it's like you... a just. You're getting to a just so story. You're saying it's theoretically possible, so it's likely. And I'm saying, well, but the data aren't there to support it. So every you know, many many things are possible. But I think it's very important that we really focus on well, what do we know, and really ask the question, what why what are we really asking here? Right? Are we asking are human males and human females, and we, we didn't even touch the problems with sort of categorizing what men and women are, but human males and human females, are they different in the way in which they see and experience sexual interactions, right? Um, that is a question, certainly. But, yeah. but, but, but I, I just want to be clear. Are, are you, I mean, it's one thing to say, well, we haven't shown that over history, uh, a, some men had more, uh, over evolutionary history, A, some men had more, uh, offspring than others, and B, those were the same men who, uh, who were unusually, uh, aroused by the sight of mere flesh or whatever it is. I mean, obviously right. we don't have that, but, right. uh, but, 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 but the first, I, I thought you were objecting to the theory that that was the case, the hypothesis that was the it, case, on grounds that there hadn't been the 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 difference in reproductive success among men to begin with. But you're not no, saying no. that. No, no. I mean, obviously, historically and in the contemporary moment, there's some variation, right? There is variation. Okay, um, well, for a number of different the, reasons. What else does the theory need? Just the theory. What else no, does no. the theory need? The hypothesis. Okay, fine. But what else? Right. No, no. Right. That's fine. So what you do with a hypothesis is you go and test it. Okay. Right? If, if it, if it is not tested, it, it remains in the realm of possible. And I'm not saying this is not in the realm of possible. And, and, and I'm how just do you saying... dismiss George Williams's test, which is that it seems to be a generalization among animal species, including many species yeah. where culture clearly isn't the, it's, the explanation it, that the, that the sex that has, that can reproduce more often is less choosy about me. How do you dismiss that evidence? That actually, if you look at, and there's a huge amount of work, and again, I keep repeating these names, but Zulematang Martinez, Patricia Gowadi, uh, Monique Bogerhoff Mulder for humans. There's study after study showing that this choosy female versus 
sort of unchoosy male doesn't fit very well for humans. And it definitely doesn't fit very well for a lot of primates, but not all primates. And across the animal kingdom, there's a lot of variation. So what I'm saying is that it does fit for some patterns and it doesn't fit for others. But you're referring to something that was in the 1960s and the amount of animal behavior studies and naturalistic studies that we have of organisms looking specifically at mating patterns and practices is huge and it's gigantic. And there's tons of reviews of sort of what's going on in, in sexual behavior in animals. And what it's turned out is that it's just a lot more complicated than that. Like this notion of choosy female and non-choosy male actually doesn't work. It works in some species right? Where females are extremely selective of particular males, but that's actually not the commonest pattern across that. There's a whole bunch of different things. And so we could go through a whole bunch of different organisms, but we should focus on males. My point of bringing up the biology at the beginning was to say, everyone wants one universal rule that explains everything about sex or about Mm -hmm. aggression or about whatever. And the more we learn about biological processes and patterns, the more we see that lineages, there are some general patterns. Of course, selection is a general pattern, right? I mean, we can understand sort of the needs of, of, of thermoregulation, of food, of sex, those kinds of things. So there's general needs, but how organisms and lineages achieve those needs, right? Meet them and satisfy them. That we have to understand the evolutionary history of these particular species or lineages or what have you. And so to understand how humans have sex, Mm -hmm. right? Or what sex means to humans, we need to look sort of broadly. And then we need to be very specific about what is the evolutionary landscape for humans, right? Um, And so what you're offering, the theory or hypothesis about choosy females and unchoosy males, of course, that's a hypothesis. Of course, that's a possibility. My argument is that to date, many people have just assumed that's true and run with it and then developed all these explanations, what have you. But I would argue that if you look at the contemporary literature, there's a lot of examples saying, wait a minute, humans are actually really much more complicated, especially when it comes to sexuality. This is why the Kinsey Report blew people's minds, right? When you actually find out, so it's, let me put this another way. It's really hard to find out what people actually do because when you ask them, they lie a lot about sex, right? So that sex is not something people talk about in the contemporary landscape a lot. But there's a whole bunch of studies. The University of Chicago has a really good study about a decade ago that demonstrates that male and females overlap much more in sexual activity, sexual desires, and sexual patterns with some important differences, mm-hmm. right? Um, so my whole what, point what is... The, what are the differences? So the differences appear largely with aging, right? Now, here's a big problem because there's some significant biological differences between those who produce uh, eggs and lactate and those who produce sperm, right? And that is those systems have different patterns as you develop over the life course. Well, do you agree Uh, that that has psychological implications? Like the fact that a 60-year-old man can still reproduce and a 60-year-old woman can't might mean that there's a genetic inclination of of 60-year-old men to be uh, more sexual, more sexually minded than 60 year old women. My assumption is if you have physiology, that's, that's in that direction, but I don't think, so here's, I I don't see how different that is as, as a, as a product of natural selection from the kinds of things we're arguing about. Let's step back because you said interest in sexuality. And one thing that's really important about human evolutionary patterns, and this is actually common for a lot of social mammals, but let's stick Mm -hmm. with humans, sex, right. Engaging in sexual activity, is mm-hmm. actually rarely associated with reproduction. Most sex you mean for humans, humans. Yes. You mean most because sex of contraception? No, 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 no. Most human sexual activity is not associated with reproduction. So remember, it isn't automatic. Anytime a, you know you have sex right. and, and produce sperm and eggs, um, that you don't 
automatic. Anyone who's tried to sort of reproduce realizes it's not automatic. And humans, like many other primates, but humans do it more, we use sex as a, an important social bond, social glue, social disruptor. So sexuality, and we have tons of sex that has nothing to do with reproduction, right? There's a huge array of sexual behaviors in humans that are impossible to get reproduction from. Um, so what we have to ask when you ask the question, oh, are males at 60 more interested in sex than females? Depends on what we mean, because sex for humans is not just connected to reproduction. For many other organisms, almost all the ones you talked about, all the ones uh, Simpson and others talked about, they have limited seasonal breeding periods where they turn on, have sex, and then turn off. Humans, like many social mammals, are sexual always, and that sexuality is situated in social connections, in histories and experiences and cultures. And so when we ask someone, how do you feel about sexuality in the contemporary, and this is what Buss and Schmidt and my arguments with David Schmidt and David Buss have been about, it's like, and they agree, like a lot of this sociosexuality is about sex writ large, not necessarily about reproduction. So then you have to ask the question, where does evolutionary and selection come in here? What's being selected for if a lot of this is not about reproduction? Maybe there's other aspects of fitness, of social bonding, well, of social sure. engagement. Of, so I mean, anything so my, that evolves can come to, to through evolution, acquire secondary uh, additional functions. But I, with humans, and this is true for all of the apes, all of the hominoids, yeah. so it's probably quite deep, sexual activity right, is not necessarily associated with sex, with reproduction. Well, and in many cases, it's same it with bonobos, with, same with, same with pygmy chimps. Well, I mean, and gorillas right. and chimpanzees okay. and uh, orangutans. So, I mean, there's okay. a lot of sex outside of reproduction. That means that when we ask, for example, humans, when we study humans and ask about sexuality, we do, we can't just say that this is an evolutionary outcome of reproductive or fitness based differences. That sexuality is actually really complicated. Well, it is, and so exhibiting of sexuality is also a social and cultural context. Right, but I think to think that uh, the the whatever psycholo- whatever psychology has evolved surrounding sexual behavior doesn't in some significant part have to do with reproduction would be to kind of, you know, well, but, but I get, don't, this is so abstract. I, I don't, I don't know how valuable this is. I mean, no, but let, this is, let this me, is the me, same me, core. I don't, I don't think it is. I think it's a distraction. I mean, um, the, uh, let me, let me say, I, I want to say one thing just so I'm not, okay. um, misinterpreted. Uh, the, um, you know, my own view, and this could be wrong. But my own view uh, about, you know, people are wondering, like, what motivates you to even have this argument? My own view is that the idea that there are no significant differences in sexual psychology between uh, male heterosexuals and female heterosexuals is not infrequently used by males to exploit females. That is my view. It could be wrong. It could be wrong, but I think I see it all the time. And well, you're not, you're nodding your head. I'm curious where so, you, if you see it, uh, so, or. No, no, I, so here's, I would even expand that. So I, here's what I see as one of the major problems with this entire discussion, particularly in the evolutionary psychological literature, but within psychology writ large, that is, you just set it up as this sort of uh, heterosexual male and heterosexual female. 
Well, if we look at sexuality in humans, those categories are good and important, and there are some substantial and important differences psychologically and behaviorally in that area. But the human possibility of sexuality is actually much broader. And so for me, in an evolutionary sense, I'm like, what's going on with this broad range of sexuality, right? And how come it's so patterned and so common across humans? Mm -hmm. So when we get into just, if we want to limit it just to heterosexual, we're actually cutting out a significant component of humans, right? So that an evolutionary explanation then is pretty, for me, it's much more tenuous. But I agree. There's huge psychological impact from sexualities. There's huge psychological impact from reproductive physiologies. Um, But, yeah, go ahead. Well, I'm saying something I think a little different. I don't want to dwell on it and get into this argument. I just want people to understand that I at least don't see myself as defending a worldview that uh, is going to be uh, or should be used to oppress women or something. I think sometimes the opposite of the case is the case. I think I have seen uh, men uh, kind of implicitly or explicitly convince um, – women that, you know, they have, they both have the same attitude towards sex. And for that reason, a a casual sexual encounter uh, is nothing to worry about. And by the way, I think often casual sexual encounters work out fine for both parties. But I do think in some cases, um, in the aftermath of one of those, uh, the woman had assumed more in the way of ongoing personal connection than the male had assumed. And, and, um, you know, I, th- I think if that's not the case, if they're, if they're, uh, I, I just think it's in everyone's interest to have as much information as possible about Great. what they can realistically expect about, uh, the aftermath of sex for them and their partner. No, because if there's going to be a huge mismatch, yeah. it can be in the interest of one or both to know that. And so I, I think I, I just want people to understand this is not inherently, you know, uh, uh, some kind of like, uh, you know, conservatively motivated no. position, even though it, it is stereotyped that way. Yeah. No, no. And I and, and you're absolutely right. Look. That's why I started with the reproductive biology. Look, understanding reproductive biology means that different humans have different physiological impacts from reproduction, right? Um, and so shouldn't insemination, right, and, and fertilization happen, right? There's a very different, for those two individuals involved, right, physiologically, the outcomes are different. That's mm-hmm. absolutely important and really important. And I would go even a step further, because of some gen- differences in genitals, right, penises uh, and labia and vaginas, because of the different mucosal linings, there's different risks for transmitted diseases. There's a variety of other kinds of things that are going on as well. So I think that's those differences are really important. But we started out sort of making these broad generalizations about evolved psychological differences. And I think that's where we've got to sort of be careful, like what you just said and what I just said, I Mm -hmm. I agree with totally. But what those mean in the broader sense of what does it mean to be a man or a woman or to be someone who doesn't fit into Mm -hmm. those categories and think about sex and humans? That's really interesting. 
And we have to step back and ask the bigger question about sexuality to understand what evolutionary processes have enabled a species like humans to be as interestingly sexual, right, and diversely sexual mm-hmm. as we are. And I think by just focusing on reproduction, we're actually missing some of the really important evolutionary questions for evolved psychologies, mm-hmm. right? Because humans are, if you look around human, I mean, humans have lots of sex and lots of kinds of sex sure. relative to almost every other organism. So that that's really interesting. And most of that sex doesn't result in reproduction. So, so those are, that's, from an evolutionary psychological perspective, I'm really interested in that. But for some reason, evolutionary psychologists almost never ask that question. Yeah. And I want to emphasize, I mean, in terms of diversity, I'm certainly not saying that it never happens that the male is the one left longing for personal connection and the heartbroken one. Men oh. can fall in love. And and a lot all of humans this, can fall in love. Right. We all fall in love. I, I know. But some people assume that what evolutionary psychologists are saying is that for men... It's always just about sex. And for women, it's always about love. No, for, for both ridiculous. of them, it can be about either or some combination right. of the both. Of both. Right. The question is under what circumstances the different things um, can happen. Now, I, I want to ask you um, uh, about sexual dimorphism. We talked about this right. a little before. Uh, males are in balance larger in our species than females. Right. That's in the, you know, Within to some a considerable extent right. in, yeah. in the genes. Uh, as we said last time, um, in general, across like, uh, primate species, uh, well, what I said, and then we'll get to what you said, right. uh, in general, across primate species, um, the, uh, the degree of sexual dimorphism is correlated with the, de- the, the, uh, the degree of difference in reproductive success right among males, the idea being that, that, uh, the reason the males are larger is, is, is because in some sense of the word, uh, they fought over the females. Right. That can take a lot of forms. It, it could be fights among males for status competition. And, and right. it could be, by the way, the female is the one doing the choosing, uh, right. you know, she, watching and, and, and choosing to, to mate with the one who won the competition. It could mean, you know, f- it can mean a lot of things. Now you said, well, this generalization holds up uh, better at the extreme ends right. uh, of sexual dimorphism, and I think you were suggesting that. So maybe it doesn't signal the, the the degree of dimorphism we see in humans doesn't signify an evolutionary right. past of differential reproductive uh, success among males of males in some sense competing for females. That seemed to be your suggestion. Yeah, and, yep. and so I would ask. What is your explanation for sexual dimorphism in humans? How so do, why there's do you a lot of good work here. I would I would encourage everyone to look at Holly Dunsworth's work and and just a whole bunch of other studies. Mike Plavkin has done a bunch of stuff on a canine dimorphism, primate dimorphism, sort of showing what it looks like. There's a bunch of literature out there. Bottom line is, if you look across the board in primate species that where males are about 25% or larger than females, um, you tend to see some of the patterns you just laid out, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, humans range about 10 to 15% larger based on populations, right? Males are 10 to 15% larger, but it's not so much the size difference. Uh, I mean, it is the size difference, but it's also you know, males have larger upper body musculature, but particularly more dense. And there's some sort of physiological differences in musculature. So there's some, there's some interesting sort of growth differences between males and females. Now, where did that come from? The most important thing, the biology that people don't talk about, is that males grow longer than females. 
All right. And most people know that, but they don't think about what that means. Males grow on average two to three years longer than females. So males grow longer, thus they're bigger, right? That's an important one. Females that's, stop that's growing. That's not earlier. an evolutionary explanation. That's a well, no, no, no. The evolutionary explanation is that the constraint on growth is probably on females, right? Because of this physiological and other related anatomies. So it turns out females stop growing earlier, males grow longer. So that that dimorphism may not be about the males being bigger. It might be about the females being smaller. But what is, what would the evolutionary explanation be for the fact that their growth stops sooner? I mean, I have one the, the explanation is, would be that the sexual dimorphism is what's being selected for. And the mechanism oh, through which the selection is realized is that the growth stops in one sooner. I, I'm serious. What is the other well, explanation? What would be uh, the benefit to females? So the, the other explanation is that because females do gestate and lactate, Right. The structuring of the energetic resources and delivery of that resources and the slight difference in fat, uh, um, uh, fat use. So humans all, uh, uh, lay down fat in the same place that all mammals do, but we're bipedal. So it's a little different, but males and females have some interesting differences in fat, um, uh, uh, use the way they, we take it up and, and modify or use it for energy. So female reproductive components might constrain female growth trajectories, right? Now there's a lot of variation, but they don't constrain the male growth trajectories. So males just grow a little bit longer, sort of filling out that primate growth pattern. And this is actually, we see this in a number of different primates where females are the limiting sex as far as growth patterns. So a lot of dimorphism, right, ends up a little bit because males grow longer than females. In the species that are really dimorphic, gorillas, geladas, you know, a range of baboons that are really dimorphic, that's when you're probably seeing selection picking up on this male growth thing and running with it. So you're saying... The, you know, ontogeny of the development of female reproductive physiology writ large imposes a constraint on how long growth can continue. Because that's a huge energetic. But that's still not an evolutionary explanation of why... I mean, no, because the constraint is not male. So if there are no constraints at all and we all had the same thing, we'd all grow to about the same range. Right. Um, but what happens is there's more constraints on energy use because that terminal growth, right, where those long bones, the femur and the humerus, where these things are mm-hmm. really growing, those are energetically intense but in, right? but in the, around puberty. But in all these primate species where sexual dimorphism is and I would say, uh, for all, uh, I, I believe ours should be included in this, but you right. don't apparently. All those primate species where uh, sexual dimorphism is correlated with difference in reproductive success among males. In those species, the dimorphism, you're saying, does reflect uh, kind of, it does have this evolutionary explanation uh, having to do with males in some sense uh, fighting over sexual access to females but in our particular in my, species, for some reason, not in it, our it particular species, something different. We we have so little. That is, in every, I would argue that in species that are twenty five percent larger or more, where males are twenty five percent larger than females, there's some suggestion. At least we have some material evidence that there's something like male male competition at that level going on. There's no evidence for that in humans mm-hmm. or in gibbons or in titi monkeys I, I or in calatrichids. So there's tons of other. We're just not that dimorphic. There are some important dimorphic okay. components. But okay, okay, we're not, we're not even that dimorphic, but we're dimorphic right. enough that the dimorphism needs an explanation. Now, you just gave me well, one, but I've got to right. say, I've got to say, evolutionary psychologists often get accused of coming up with, quote, just so stories. Yeah, that could explain it, but where's the evidence? And when they do come up with evidence, you know, like, well, I think I've cited some, but right. but sometimes that's ignored. But in any event, 
To me, the explanation you just gave sounds like, yeah, it could be, but where I'd like to see some kind of cross species evidence or some, it, it just seems like. Why cross species? There's, okay, well, I just published cross species evidence well, so, well, on any the evidence, dominance and Any evidence. Success. It sounds like, it just sounds like conjecture to me. Okay, read Holly Dunsworth's work. Read well, physiological. No, what, I mean, what do you know? <laughs> okay, so the evidence is that, look, female energetic requirements associated with the terminal part of gestation and the lactation are higher than the BMR requirements are for males, right? In, in mm-hmm. some contexts. Now, males also cost a little bit more because they're larger bodied. But by having smaller bodies, females have a lower BMR overall, which gives them the flexibility during this particular peak cost moment at terminal gestation and lactation to have flexibility in their mm-hmm. metabolic processes. That's a selective outcome, right? That's the point. That's a physiology. I've given you material physiology thing. It's a plausible and testable assessment. And if you look at the literature, people talk about the costs for women, not during early pregnancy, but uh, in terminal pregnancy and lactation, which is extremely expensive. Lactation costs a lot. Well, I think you're right. I would have to read the papers um, to say anything more. The um, Let me ask you quickly about... Uh, you know, as we said, there's a range of uh, cross-cultural evidence that is at least cited by evolutionary psychologists. Um, some of it has been accumulated uh, by people like David Buss. Uh, others does not result from exper- experiments. It's just kind of cross-cultural uh, observation. One of these is, I alluded to this, is uh, pornography. Uh, you know, the kind of pornography. I mean, I, I, I'm not aware of a single. We culture. didn't evolve to look at pornography. I of mean, course that, we you didn't. have to be very, didn't. but then you've got to be very specific because like we didn't evolve to eat, to eat Snickers bars, but we did evolve to have a sweet tooth because fruit was good for us. Right. I mean, at least that's a good story. That's a plausible no, that, story. I don't have so a better we one. Can, no, we like the sugars and all that. So, but the question is, is pornography simply a Snickers bar or is there something else going on here? I, I can say this time by telling you, yes, pornography is a Snickers bar, but go ahead. Uh, you know, Bob, I think that's, that's a very sort of weird cultural centric context. What's your there explanation? A lot of societies, there were lots of, well, pornography has a particular history in a particular context of gender, sexual roles and expectations that then our notion of contemporary pornography emerges clearly out of both uh, Victorian context, right, mm-hmm. English context, and the Japanese context. Does that explain and, Asia? Well, I was saying, I just said, and a Japanese context. Well, what about China? What about Thailand? Component. What about the no, fact that, you, that there's not emerged. a single culture in the world that, so far as I know, is an, and again, I'm not celebrating this. I think por- I think no. pornography is a problem for a lot of males and for some of the women who are involved in the industry. I, 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 I'm not, I'm not. Okay. Again, I am not celebrating the patterns I'm describing, but I would right. like for somebody to show me some big society where the pattern is reversed and, 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 the, and it's the women who are attracted well, to just well, pictures of flesh me, well, overwhelmingly not, in much greater gonna, numbers than the men are. But not all men are like this is I mean, there's no, so not much all men are. I'm not saying so, that but, all are. But let me pull back. You're using you want an evolutionary explanation for this. Well, let me ask you this. Sort of the, almost every society on the planet is now part of a capitalist economy. Does that mean capitalist economies are the natural evolutionary outcome of human evolution? Uh, no, 
Uh, so I mean, why I mean capitalism does engage some natural features of, of human society, uh, of, of human nature, but so do alternative systems. And okay. the reasons so that why, you see a lot of capitalism is, have to do with other things. I well, know. But then so why are we saying that, oh, the fact that in the contemporary landscape, something that has just emerged on that landscape, pornography, which is heavily culturally and experientially mm-hmm. sold, structured and packaged. Why do we search for a deep evolutionary, historical, psychological well, explanation I, I, for this rather than other kinds of like what what prioritizes that over the well, other? I, I think it, when when I see a pattern this pronounced across societies of any kind, I look for some well, kind of explanation. Have you shown? I mean, the thing is that in a contemporary world, like in a digital landscape that we are in that kind mm-hmm. of context, yes, it has diffused because many, many things have diffused, right? I mean, there are McDonald's everywhere on the planet. Uh, I wouldn't say we have an evolved adaptation to eat McDonald's, right? I would but say that the food appeals to some natural uh, human taste. It is marketed incredibly well. There's, of course, of Physiologically, course. there's a whole bunch of other things. I'm just saying that, yes, you know, there might be some caloric structuring in McDonald's that appeals, but not more so than street food or something else. There's a reason why everyone goes to McDonald's. There's a reason in the contemporary landscape why a bunch of men take pornography. And it may not have anything to do with our evolutionary okay, histories, but, and it may have a ton to do uh, with the contemporary society. Okay, okay but, but I'm just curious, uh, do you have an explanation for why it seems to be just almost a constant across cultures, this difference well, okay. in the kind of... And again, women uh, are, are attracted to pornography. It's more likely to have a plot. It's more likely to, you know, they're... These are very specific studies. I mean, there's to say that everyone in the world is attracted, like all males and all females are attracted or not attracted to pornography. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. But, but, but I, what I said was... Okay. That whenever that uh, I, I can show you a lot of societies where, on balance, uh, males seem to be willing to pay more money, go to more trouble, okay. to see just human flesh than okay. females. Let, let me ask you if all of these societies are capitalist, are structured, or you know, pseudo capitalist, no, no. and are structured by contemporary developmental market and digital systems. No, in 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 uh, during the cold, there was a, in in the, like in the sixties. Uh, if if you traveled to the Soviet Union and they inspected your luggage and found a Playboy magazine, they took well, it out. I think there's a reason where, they didn't want where, it in that society, where, and it wasn't Russia, that nobody wanted to look at it. Russia, pre-Soviet Russia had pornography, right? They were part of the European world. They were part of these structures. Okay, where so is it's this... not like, I mean, just so, saying what, where, I mean, in the world, there's plenty of places in the world, or there probably were up until recently, where you would show people a Playboy and they'd be like, what the hell is that? Well, I'd like to, I'd like you to show me the society where men overwhelmingly had that reaction um, or that, or that it was the ideally that it was the opposite. I, I think the question, no, not the opposite. I just think no, the, no. But I mean, that women, show me a society where I, I mean, look, there, there have been various different. But what about different parts of the world where different people find different things attractive? Not everyone finds a particular like a Playboy person attractive. Of course not. Of course not. So, so, but I'm just saying, many, many societies don't have endemic pornography. They do now, but they didn't in the past, and so. Pornography was something that was created, fostered, and sold, inserted, so, structured into society. So the fact now, that now I'm not saying that that there aren't differences in arousal patterns or stimulus, not patterns, because actually the physiological patterns are the same for males and females, but in stimulus, arousal stimuli between males and females on average in the contemporary world. Whether that reflects this deep evolutionary 
uh, structuring is I'm dubious of that because we don't have any neurobiological or physiological processes that would indicate that. Okay. So your, your idea is that the reason you find this pretty much everywhere now is that it was in some sense imposed on these societies. Structured into them, just like the McDonald's, right? And, I mean, and, I could make the same who argument did for the McDonald's. structuring and why. I mean, why wouldn't a capitalist just as soon sell pornography to a woman as a man? I, I don't. It doesn't have to be capitalism. I was just trying to sort of think of the developed world, right? I just think that we're asking a question about deep evolutionary psychological processes using a proxy measure, pornography. Uh-huh. that doesn't actually get at what we think it's getting at. I don't. I'm not sure. I mean, okay. maybe there's a difference in males and females on average between, and this is well-documented psychologically in contemporary world, but by visual stimulus. Now, what does that difference mean? Where does that come from? How does it happen? Mm-hmm. Um, that's really interesting, right? So then the question is, are, are there neurobiological or physiological differences that, that may, that cause certain people to achieve sort of respond to male, to stimulus in different ways? That's an interesting question. But just to put a pornography in front of someone and say, look, males are more likely to be into it than yeah, females. This is just one example we happen to get off on. I mean, the, there is separately a body of uh, cross-cultural data that has been gathered uh, via experimental means and some via uh, observational means. Um, and, and this is, you, you know, and, and, and the argument is that there's just a lot of this stuff about, you know, survey differences, uh, between men and women and so on, uh, and, and along with just, uh, not experimental data, but observe things like this that right. seem to fall into place, uh, well, through an evolutionary so, lens and, uh, no, you know, through, and that the more things like that there are, the more strength the argument has. And, and well, but I, and if then there are good the alternative literature. explanations, that's fine, but. No, but, but there's a whole bunch. Look at the actual studies on human sexuality. Read the behavioral uh, brain sciences articles by David Schmidt and, and David Buss and look at, read all the commentaries. Mm-hmm. See how this is playing out. Read the work by uh, Anne Fausto Sterling. Go to the Kinsey Institute, which is the number one sexual. No, but the Kinsey Institute. Now, I, the only reason I made that expression is the first thing I wrote uh, about um evolutionary psychology was a review of a book by Anne Fausto Sterling, I think, in the New Republic in like 1988 or 9 or something. Uh, uh-huh. And I used it as a textbook case of something where there were all these like Freudian explanations of differences between men and women that I claimed had a simpler explanation. But sorry for that reaction. Well, uh, no, I but I mean... But she, you know, read her most recent book just out this past year. She's a very good neurobiologist, and there's a lot of interesting stuff about neurobiological patterns, similarities, and differences. So I'm just saying Mm -hmm. the data are out there, but I think the, you know, back to our beginning, because we're close to out of time here, this Mm -hmm. this evolutionary psychological, the way you talked about, if theoretically it could be possible, then we should sort of focus on it. My suggestion is lots of things are theoretically possible, but I'm very committed to the kind of actual data and the physiological and neurobiological processes. And this is one of the problem with a lot of psychological literature is we get these general contexts that's hard to extract from culture, from history, from experience, and from the neurobiology. All those things are mixed together, right? And they reshape mm. and affect one another. But the assumption that any difference like pornography can be primarily traced back to differences in our evolutionary past, I'm going to push against a little bit because the data aren't there to support it. Um. Okay, I, I want to say, uh, 
I could be wrong about it. Could be that uh, Freudian explanations weren't the ones of Anthony Sterling that I complained about. So, <laughs> yeah, so, I, I, so, yeah, that uh, strikes me as strange. But, but, but there were uh, the basic idea was you can explain this stuff more easily uh, than um, than she's doing. If I recall correctly, it's been a long time. I want to bring up one more thing before we go. I think you're right. We've been at this a long time. Um, that is jealousy. I mean, first of all, you're right that one thing we absolutely agree on is that in our species, male parental investment uh, became a thing. Uh, right. That's very different from chimpanzees. In chimpanzee societies, it's yeah. I don't think it's clear, is it, that males seem to have any sense for which offspring are theirs. Um, uh, actually, there's some debate about that, but yeah. I mean, that's a whole other discussion. But, but, clearly, but there's some interesting but stuff about clearly that. Clearly yeah. in our species, males and females, they pair off in a way that does uh, give the uh, – create a sense of what's called paternity confidence. Although, again, the idea isn't that males are designed to necessarily think about this and think, oh, right. well, if I – if she's been hanging out with me for nine months, this must be my kid. It, it, you know, these things can – they can be evolutionary adaptations and still work at an unconscious level. But in any event, um, I think we agree it's a hugely important thing in our species. I'm yeah. grateful for it. I have kids. I love them. There's no feeling like it. It's the, you know, it's like the closest thing you can get to unconditional love. And, yeah. and it's, um, it's an amazing blessing. But so this is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. So if you work, uh, read my uh, colleague Lee Gettler's work, he's done all this work on physiology and endocrine, psychoneuroendocrine response by men to having, to getting married, to having kids, this kind of stuff. And there's, there's data that support this, right? There's mm -hmm. clear data that really show how both males and females respond with the same uh, oxytocin and prolactin responses that, uh, you know, the, the human system responds almost identically to infant. Like you take an infant and rub it on male or female, you get this response. And so that's fascinating. And that leads us to like, well, what is this deep time evolutionary context for mm -hmm. reproduction for humans. It's really fascinating because we, unlike most things, have a lot of investment by men and women. Right. Now, it has been pointed out that the fact of male parental investment in some ways has potentially asymmetrical implications for the, the evolution of, 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 of male and female psychology. I think the best work on this was done by uh, Martin Daly and Margot Wilson. Um, they were... Uh, uh, kind of a, a husband and wife team, I guess. Margot died some, uh, I think, uh, more than 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, but, but they did. I, I mean, I would personally recommend, uh, their work broadly. They did a lot of important work. Um, and you know, by the way, I just, a little tangent, but like, uh, just to try to dispel the idea that all evolutionary psychologists are convergence are conservatives. They, they did some, some really, uh, really smart work on crime rates, uh, showing that, that and this was in Canada, I think, but showing that if you, if you correct for income level, as I recall it, or homicide rates, if you correct for income level and various other things, the ethnic differences disappear. It's like differences between ethnic groups and in, in the uh, proclivity to commit crimes disappear once you correct for these other things. And it was a Darwinian uh, perspective that led them to believe that. Now, with with that tangent aside, they the, their work on jealousy, uh, they said, basically, look, so if, you know, you have this thing called male parental investment. I mean, obviously, it's an important thing during evolution. It would probably be an important thing for the reproductive prospects 
of a woman. Once you see how much it human can do. reproductive investment, though, human. And see here's here's our debate, right? You're dividing male and female in reproductive investment. What's weird for humans is that males, as well as a whole bunch of other members of the group, are very invested. So as oh, a sure. species, we're very invested. And so I think you sure. need to be careful about just saying that this is the specific thing for men. Sure. It's interesting that males are participating in this, right. but what's really interesting is that it is raising human right. children does take a village or a right. group. So if, or if the woman has an offspring, the more brothers and sisters she has, the better because they're, they're invested and they'll help and they'll defend the right. kid. And that's great. Her parents will, but of course she won't always have those and all other things being, and even if she has them, it's still better. Uh, for, I mean, in terms of reproductive prospects, to have uh, uh, a, a a father who will fight for the kid, who will go find, for, you know, it's always better, right? You'd agree. Yes, no, totally agreed with that. But here's, and we don't have time for this, but so this whole idea that the pair bond, and I've written a lot on the pair bond, I've done a lot of research on it, because I, I find it particularly interesting. Humans are very distinctive in their tendency to pair bond of many different kinds. But the idea that the nuclear family is the basal unit of human evolution is wrong. I mean, there's great data to suggest that that's not the case. No, I agree. Um, I agree with that. So, so we have to be careful about you. It's not just mothers and sisters and the family. No, fam- no, but it is, it is that, that kin selection, theory of kin selection to which you alluded earlier suggests that the closest, uh, relatives of the mother will be most invested in helping her offspring. But, no, but what happens in humans is what's very interesting is it sometimes is not Kin is defined not necessarily by biology. So many times the people oh, sure. doing most of the care are not biological relatives. Sure. And so that's what I'm saying. Humans have this incredible capacity that to can develop happen. this caretaking context. That's I actually mean, it's the course, most common. It's also the case that we presumably in small hunter-gatherer societies, the average rate, uh, the average His degree of relatedness was very of kinship yeah. is yeah. is sufficiently high that, like, you know, if you grew up with him, you might as well throw him a bone every once in a while. <laughs> you know, you've, you've probably got some of the genes. But, uh, yeah. oh, you know, you take my other co- We should have so another we'll, conversation about well, this whole I, I, I want to, but, and, but, uh, but just to, to finish this uh, jealousy thing. Um, so they said, look, so uh, for a, a a woman you might imagine – that in terms of what makes her uh, most jealous is the threat of the withdrawal of emotional. Well, emotional here is a proxy for commitment. Okay, so uh, th- that the more emotionally involved the man is with her, presumably the more committed he's going to be uh, to the raising of an ensuing child, and so on. Um, and so, uh, and you know, maybe she's already pregnant. Maybe they've got a kid. Who knows? But in theory. Uh, that would be a serious threat to her reproductive uh, prospects. Um, whereas for the man, let's say he's uh, leaving her for another mate, um, then, uh, and not necessarily leaving her, but, but attracted to another mate in a way that's going, could lead to a division of his attention and his resources uh, between the one mate's offsprings and the others. Um, it's not, it's not necessarily a, a bad thing in reproductive terms, uh, for, um, for that to happen. And now, now, um, so first of all, you, you would expect, they said, this is Martin and Margot's argument. They said, no, but so their women, argument, you're still stuck well, on this finish, idea that the nuclear the argument. family let me finish, is let the me finish the argument. No, I don't think it assumes that at all. Uh, I think this is another case where if you, uh, believe that natural selection works on the margins then then 
whether, but this only works if you believe that the one male and the one female are the central piece, that everything else is peripheral. What I, I don't agree that the logic not, only holds up in that case. I agree that the logic would be stronger and might predict stronger differences in that case. But I don't believe that it's it's nothing. In any event, their, their argument um, was that now for the man, if you ask what kind of infidelity, so you'd expect the woman to be very worried about a man, like, falling in love with another woman, you wouldn't expect her to worry so much, uh, well, I mean, relatively speaking, it is a less grave threat uh, in and of itself for the man to have, say, have had sex uh, with another woman. Um, whereas with the man, uh, for for a woman in, in whose uh, offspring he's going to invest, for her to be having sex with, an, with other men is a different kind of threat, right? Because the woman always has confidence that the offspring are hers. And again, it's not necessarily conscious confidence, but you would expect uh, evolution to produce uh, behaviors and psychological uh, tendencies that kind of uh, acknowledge differences like this. And for the woman, um, you know, uh, so so their argument was uh, emotional, uh, emotional, the emotional distraction or infidelity of the man is a, a bigger threat than that is than, than hers is to him, um, and uh, for the man, the woman's sexual infidelity is a bigger threat uh, to his reproductive prospects uh, than than his sexual infidelity is to her. And can... okay, let me just finish. They, they okay, so but, yeah. they not only so so they went back and they found data on jealousy that had been gathered without, uh, you know, uh, by psychologists who hadn't emphasized this because they hadn't expected it theoretically. But they did find, even in this kind of, you might say, pristine data, uh, gathered with no particular theoretical axe to grind, they did find this difference in relative emphasis. Again, men and women alike don't like emotional infidelity on the part of a mate or sexual infidelity. The question is the degrees of... Uh, emphasis as reflected in the amount of jealousy evoked by the two prospects and the kind of jealousy. Now, subsequently, David Buss and others did a lot of survey work uh, showing, I mean, he even went and showed different levels of physiological arousal when you ask a male to imagine sexual infidelity, female, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and again, I'm not here to vouch for all that. I'm just saying the body of data is out there. I also want to emphasize the implication of this theory, uh, if true, is that some really horrible social uh, problems may have a, 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 a strong basis that we really need to wrestle with. For example, males attempting to monopolize the sexuality of females. That leads to violence. It's a horrible thing. But I think um, the best way to understand any problem <laughs> is to understand its roots. But I want to ask you, what is your reaction? So the argument of Martin and Margot is, look, yeah. We go do these studies now and find it. We go look at uh, data gathered by other psychologists and find it. It makes theoretical yeah. sense. And again, this doesn't mean we've the, proven the theory. The, it just means there's reason to to have some confidence so in, and I, continue to examine it. I mean, you just put this, I really don't have much time, but I mean, the bottom this line was my is plan I would all love along. to have a long conversation about cross-cultural variation and jealousy. And there's a lot of good anthropological work out there and there's good psychological work. Also, what jealousy means. So the final part where you're talking about male control of female sexuality, that's important. And that's a really common pattern. And we need to understand how 
how and why that happens. Um, I am not a fan of Margot Daly, uh, of Daly and Wilson at all for a number of reasons. And I encourage people to, there's a huge body of literature sort of pushing against some of their stuff, but that, that's neither here nor there. The bottom line here is that this explanation for jealousy that you gave still re- relies on the sort of male female as the pair bond, as the central locus of selective patterns and pressures, whereas there's this broader sociality. And in many cases, sexuality patterns across culturally do not map to the contemporary jealousy that you just described, that, that, that they, people don't feel that same way. Now, I don't have time to go through all the ethnographies, but if we meet again, I can just lay them out and we can talk <laughs> about them. The bottom line is um, I think you're still creating a very narrow window and then searching for a contemporary issue and trying to explain it with an evolutionary past that I don't think the data support. Um, and the jealousy data cross-culturally right now are very complicated. The jealousy data in contemporary humans, depending on who's taking it, are actually quite complicated as well. But I mean, that I really don't have time for the yeah, longer that, that, one because we're already... That, over our time. That could be, uh, you know, that if I look at the most recent stuff on jealousy, I'll find that it's been overturned. I would, I would say quickly the, um, I think what you said about their theory assuming kind of nuclear family does get it a, a kind of fundamental difference between us. I think that all it depends on is showing or having good reason to believe that there was some, uh, correlation uh, between a, a, uh, male mate's tendency to stray, uh, emotionally and a woman's reproductive, uh, success, that, that kind of correlation, uh, it doesn't have to be a hugely strong correlation. Um, it, but, but, uh, so long as there is a correlation there that you have reasonably persisted in time, I think that's enough for natural selection to pick up on it to some extent. But, okay. And I, mean, I think I see this, this I, difference between I think us. There has uh, to be returns. something there for natural selection to act on. Act, Absolutely. You can't act on correlations. That's to act on physiology, morphology, neurobiology. And study after study after study shows that those, those patterns for this context, uh, haven't been discovered. Maybe okay. they're out there, but, but in reality, and that's, I think, an important point, um, just to sort of end on. But, you know, the discussion is good. This is important stuff to talk about for the reasons you outlined. Okay. So. Uh, I'd be happy to have another conversation on this or anything else. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Uh, we'll have to figure out. I mean, we do, there is the whole sex versus gender thing. I mean, maybe that Let's would probably it. be the next. Because uh, I, I actually, I don't have such strong views on that. So we'll let you hold court. Well, the, 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 and there's, there's a huge explosion of current data on that right now. Neurobiological, genetic, physiological. It's a great stuff. Great I'm talk. not well versed enough to give you pushback. So uh, in, in that, so. Um, I'll send you some stuff beforehand. <laughs> no, no. I think you should just enjoy yourself and and uh, have your way with a, a, a an ill informed interlocutor <laughs> next time. Um, and maybe that's what you're doing today, for all I know. So, uh, but anyway, but the discussion is important. Matt. It is. It is. Thanks so much for the time. Uh, tell us your Twitter handle. It's uh, uh, Anthro Fuentes. Anthro Fuentes. Yeah. I'm at Robert Ryder. This is the right show. Thanks for watching. Please do rate and review us if you want to, uh, if, if you like, uh, vigorous discussion of important, uh, issues between people who disagree. Or even if you don't, what the hell? Um, so, so thank you. Thank you so much, Augustine. This was fun. Thanks, Bob.